everyone, and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with Women Leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. This is our second special short episode devoted to understanding the rapidly shifting realities in world events those shifting realities emanating from the horrendous Hamas attacks on Israel on 7th of October, the unfolding war and siege in Gaza, and the potential for a regional war in the Middle East. This week, President Biden visited the region, as did German Chancellor Schulz and UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. At the same time, Russian President Vladimir Putin visited China and had a long meeting with President Xi. This is a new world, a world of disorder, and we are seeking a few pointers to understand the immediate implications. To this end, we are delighted to welcome back Natalie Tocci, Director of the Italian Institute for International Affairs and former Special Advisor to EU High Representatives Federica Mogherini and Joseph Borrell. Hi, Natalie, and thank you so much for joining us again. Lovely being with you again, Ilana. I suppose let's just start from the very beginning. What happened this week? Well, I mean, I think this week is, um, you know, well, as we enter essentially the second week uh, since this um, horrific new peak of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, it's been a week where, on the one hand, I think there's a story about what what hasn't happened uh, yet, um, meaning that, you know, from... The very beginning, after Hamas's terrorist uh, attack on the 7th of October, there was a sense that, um, you know, really in a matter of a few hours, um, there would be uh, a completely different type of Israeli military response. Uh, And I would say after a couple of days, um, the objective, uh, the Israeli objective of eradicating Hamas uh, was formulated. Um, And there was a sense that a ground invasion would have happened literally overnight. So in some respects, you know, as the war goes on, and of course, civilian uh, casualties in Gaza continue to rise, uh, one can describe this week also as being, in some respects, a week of um, questions, a week of questioning, right? Um, of course, you know, I don't mean to say that as the questions were being raised, uh, things remained as, uh, as you know, stayed put, um, you know, what, what happened uh, you know, and what continues to happen every day suggests that obviously there's far too much action going on. Um, and yet I think that while the, the, the anger, the rage is still very high, Um, What happened particularly in um, relation to President Biden's visit to Israel is that a number of important questions started being raised. So as the United States stands and demonstrates, it's not simply a rhetorical support for Israel, it's a very practical support to Israel that essentially uh, translates in kind of aircraft carriers. Um, So, you know, you can't get more concrete than that. So as those very concrete gestures of solidarity are shown, and I think it's quite interesting that, you know, despite the fact that, as we know, sort of Israeli public opinion has shifted uh, way to the right over the course of the last years, 
Uh, and yet President Biden, a Democrat president, is probably the most popular president in Israel um, that there's ever been. So, you know, I think this really goes to show that that practical demonstration of solidarity, the message came out loud and clear. And I think precisely because of that, uh, Biden has been, um, in a sense, has been put in a position, was legitimized to ask, to ask some difficult questions. Uh, and to make some, I think, quite important points, which really revolve around the fact of, um, firstly, how does this military response actually take place? And this is where uh, essentially the story about respect for international humanitarian law and international law more broadly uh, come in. So yes, indeed, Israel has the right uh, to self-defense, uh, but that right has to be exercised uh, in respect of other rights. Uh, so that's one part of the conversation, which is really the how you do it. But then I think there are some even deeper questions that um, Biden raised, which are really about what is it that you want to do? And have you really thought this through? Uh, especially have you thought through what the implications are for the day after? Um, I think it was extremely powerful the way in which Biden, uh, speaking in Israel, uh, made very explicit reference to the mistakes that the United States uh, made uh, when it was um, sort of swept by anger and rage uh, and a sense of revenge for 9-11 and, and, and basically sort of saying, well, you know, we, we some of the actions that were taken within that particular sort of psychological and political context then generated um, sort of devastating costs that in many respects we're still grappling with, right? Um, now, I, I don't know whether that is having, an, an, you know, I think it had a temporary impact in terms of, you know, sort of perhaps prolonging somewhat uh, decision-making in, in Israel. Tragically, sort of, I'm not, I'm not sure that it will actually have a lasting impact, but I think this is basically where, you know, where we are at the moment. And what about the northern um, element in all of this, Hezbollah and uh, um, the northern border of Israel and potentially Iran's involvement in the region? Do you perceive there's been any movement on that this week? So I think that at the moment, um, we are still in a situation in which um, all of uh, the regional parties, um, beginning with Hezbollah and, and of course Iran, um, and naturally Israel as well, don't have an interest in regionalizing this conflict. So I think uh, it's not very obvious in the case of Israel, it has its own kind of, you know, uh, troubles in uh, to, to, to address in, in Gaza. Um, but I would say that in the case of Iran as well, there's already been a, a net gain from the situation. Um, this has already been a big win for Iran that has essentially suspended, if not terminated, the normalization between Israel and, uh, and Saudi Arabia. Um, and as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict reignites, and we have seen, you know, those Arab streets, basically, um, this, this is all credit for Iran, right? So on the one hand, the win has already been there. Were this to then tip into a war, well, a war by definition, uh, even if it goes very well, always has very high costs, right? And you don't actually know how it's going to go. So I think that at the moment, no one really, including Iran, they don't. no one has an interest in a regional war. Now, does this therefore imply that a regional war won't happen? 
well, no, we can't exclude it. Uh, and of course, I think it will largely depend on exactly what happens over the next hours and days as Israel um, most likely enters Gaza um, through a, a, a land intervention. And, and you know, and, and this will, you know, the situation is going to get infinitely bloodier than what we have seen. And therefore, how that then uh, spills over um, in terms of the so-called Arab street, in terms of, you know, you can, you can imagine very well here a situation in which even if no one wants this to happen, uh, we may be headed exactly in this direction. Indeed. Um, it is worth reminding people that, in fact, there's been a regional war going on for at least probably the last 15 years in one way or another. It's just not involved Israel and um, uh, Palestine um, in the sense that Syria, Iraq um, have been entirely burning the refugees in Jordan and Lebanon. Russia has been part of that war in Syria. The US has been there. Um, Turkey is very much involved in it. So. In very many ways, there's been a contained but ongoing war in the region. And it's this is a potential escalation rather than a creation of a war. And I think it's very important maybe uh, to bring that to the fore. Um, what about Russia? Russia's had a good week, hasn't it? It has had a good week. Um, although, you know, whereas I think, I mean, you know, we know that Iran's involvement is very, I mean, I'm not sure direct is the right word, but very active, let's put it this way. Yeah? I mean, I, I, I kind of hesitate to use the word direct because I think there's a, a Hamas agency there that one has to, to recognize. I don't think that Iran is simply the puppet master here. Uh, but very clearly, there's been a very active Iranian uh, involvement in this. Um, I don't think that the same applies to, to Russia, which, of course, doesn't mean that Russia has not been... Um, you know, actually rather happy with uh, with the events. And I think, you know, the reason why Russia has been uh, rather sort of happy to see all this unfolding is because of the larger uh, picture of how this affects um, the West's reputation in the so-called global South. And, um, you know, the way in which that anger in uh, the Arab and not just Arab streets that we've been seeing uh, over um, the last few days uh, really links back to, um, you know, and has, I think, sort of uh, weakened really quite significantly our stance on Ukraine, right? Because it has allowed all of those um, sort of, you know, old beliefs of our double standards and our hypocrisy and all the rest of it I mean, it's kind of there, you know, in your face, right? Um, and so Russia, even if it hasn't had an active involvement, um, it has, you know, uh, again, gained quite significantly from this. The point that I wanted to make, I think you're absolutely right in pointing out the fact that there, there have been uh, regional and regionalized uh, conflicts all around. Um, I still think it's important to point out something that, um, and, and perhaps I'm generalizing because I should be really speaking for myself rather than speaking for everyone else, but um, let me say, I'll put it in the singular rather than in the plural, but, you know, sort of, I had, I wouldn't say forgotten about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but I had certainly neglected the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right, over the last years. And I think, you know, two, 
to, to a large extent, there had been an implicit or explicit buy-in to a particular Israeli narrative that basically said, you know what, we don't really need to solve this. Um, and, you know, so that we can take the Palestinian question out of that regional equation and normalize our relations with uh, the Arab world, meaning obviously mainly uh, the Gulf, um, without resolving uh, without resolving the Palestinian question. Um, and I wouldn't say that there was ever an explicit buy-in to this line, but there was an implicit buy-in to this line, because it's not as if we tried very hard to revive the peace process, right, in, in recent years. And it's, it's really quite shocking, if one thinks about it, that over the last years, the only negotiations that have taken place between Israelis and Palestinians have been between Israel and Hamas. Um, and, you know, with an Israeli government that, as we know, denies the two-state solution, uh, happy to negotiate on non-peace related issues with another organization that also denies the two-state solution. And, and somehow we allowed this to happen thinking that it would be, that there was a, that, that it was sustainable, right? And again, I shouldn't be saying we, I should be saying I, yeah? So this is a sort of mea culpa, but I think many people probably fell into, into this trap. So, you know, sort of looking at those Arab streets that we've seen, I've been reminded about the fact that although the Middle East has known a lot of trouble and still does, if there's one issue that can really reignite the region like anything else, it's precisely this one. I think that's very, very true. And it's also worthwhile noting, because I, I think a lot of people don't know this, that uh, within Israel, um, there is a huge amount of anger directed at uh, the Prime Minister, Netanyahu. But one of the central issues that there's anger over is precisely he has been the leader of this conception that um, you just need to talk to Hamas, your biggest enemy, and ignore everybody else and ensure that um, uh, uh, the, the, the Palestinian Authority stays weak and in the West Bank. Um, now, the, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and Europe should be responsible for themselves, but it is worthwhile noting that within Israel, this has been very much derailed and perceived as being, you know, one of the major causes of this situation. And I, I have no doubt that as we move along, probably beyond the very violent stage that we're at, that will be rethought on various sides. But I would like to come back to Russia because of Ukraine, because Ukraine has not had necessarily the best week in the world. Uh, it's not had a bad week, but it's not had the best week in the world. And Russia, again, has gained there because, um, you know, Ukraine is nowhere in the headlines anymore. It's really way down. And um, we're down to mostly, you know, sort of human stories about Ukraine rather than war stories about Ukraine, which is a big Russian gain. Um, what is happening in Ukraine and where do you think that's going at this point? So, you know, I think that um, we are already in a stage of the war in which there's, uh, and there has been, a, you know, there's a broad recognition uh, that this is a long war. And what I mean here by a long war is really something quite <coughs> specific, um, meaning I don't know how long the war is going to last, but there's one thing that we definitely do know. Obviously, the caveat to this is, something happening in Russia that no one has any idea of whatsoever. But assuming that doesn't happen, uh, if there's one thing that I think has become really rather clear 
over the last few months is that at the very least this war is going to go on until uh, until the US election, right? Because if there is um, one chance that Russia has to really reverse the tide, um, it is it is the election of Donald Trump. Uh, and so you at the very least want to give yourself that, you know, sort of wait until that moment to see whether that's possible. I think it was the recognition of that point, which I think was not there, you know, had we had this conversation six months ago, um, we would have probably said something along the lines that there's going to be, you know, one or two Ukrainian counteroffensives, and then by the time we get into the U.S. presidential campaign, uh, you know, the situation will not necessarily resolve itself into a peace agreement, um, but but it will somehow, I wouldn't say die down, but um, reduce in intensity. Um, I, I think now we know that's not going to happen. And this is basically what has led, not now, but already, if, of course, a few weeks before this whole um, sort of tragedy start, began unfold, unfolding in the Middle East, is um, are we prepared? Are we prepared for that long war? And hence the conversations about the fatigue. And, and I think this connects to the point that you're making, you know, sort of now the Middle East, now Ukraine's no longer sort of headline material. And, and I think it's sort of worth, worth reflecting about to what extent is this really a problem um it's a problem to the extent that without public attention eventually support economic and military um will reduce but to the to the extent that that's not the case i mean it, there is a world out there in which ukraine is not talked about every other minute and yet that support continues uh, you know, sort of rolling in. Um, I think that, you know, well, there's a US, uh, obviously, sort of, you know, twist to the story, which largely has to do with what on earth is happening to Congress. <laughs> and, you know, um, which in a sense is a story that is kind of, you know, beyond, well beyond Ukraine, right? Um, I mean, you know, if there's a failure to come up <laughs> with some sort of speaker, um, that it's not as if there's not going to be aid to Ukraine, there's certainly not going to be a US budget. <laughs> um, so that that's, in a sense, one piece of the, of the story. However, that if one looks at it through that lens, then that's not really affected by the fact that Ukraine's not talked about. Um, it's part of another dynamic. In the case of European support, um, actually, you know, that there is this major piece of good news that uh, <laughs> that we've had over the last week, which, of course, is the Polish election. <laughs> um, you know, and so going back to this question of are we resilient to a long war? Do we have what it takes for a long war? I think what happened in Poland um, is, of course, not the definitive yes answer, but it's, you know, it may not be a sufficient condition, it definitely is a necessary one. So in this respect, you know, if one is to find a ray of light somewhere, it is definitely in Poland today. Well, I think that's a very um, optimistic view, and I would share your happiness about events in Poland. Um, let's just finish on the EU, because as ever, the EU has not had its best week. Oh and, dear, dear, exactly. I thought we could end on a positive note, but hey, we're ending on a really negative one. Note. There is an interesting note if we think about it, and by that I mean that you know everybody is pointing out what a problem um, the EU is having with me with messaging, and that actually that's all you ever hear about in the EU. What Borrell says, what Bordelain says, what Michel says, what anybody says, 
uh, what this prime minister, that prime minister, but the EU and maybe the US, and maybe this is democracy versus autocracy, I don't know. But one of the biggest stories that has come out, if we go back to the very beginning from the Israel-Hamas horrendous events, is um, how much um, the internet and social media has had to do with it, and the way both revolting images have just circulated everywhere on the one hand, but how the street has been brought out largely through messaging there. Really an interesting question, a small one. Why is it that the EU is stuck on just messaging just between each other, let alone to the world, and nobody even understands what it does and what it's going to do in these world events? Well, I think the EU has had a, um, a terribly bad week because, again, you know, if one is to sort of make the comparison between you know, the conversation that we would have had six months ago and the conversation that we're having today. Um, six months ago, I would have told you, well, you know, I mean, you know, these Europeans at the end of the day, look, you know, I mean, they're getting their act together, really. I mean, they have a united position on Ukraine. They've kept at it. Um, despite all the talk of divisions, they have kept at it. Um, there, it's not just messaging, it's money, it's weapons. Uh, of course, you know, the United States is still indispensable. And if, you know, Trump were elected, it would be an absolute catastrophe for Ukraine. And yet, you know, whereas at the beginning of the war, there was a huge mismatch between what the United States was providing and what Europeans collectively were providing. Um, now, collectively, the US, uh, the, the you know, Europeans have overtaken uh, the US. Um, enlargement is a serious conversation alongside it, you know, the serious conversation about uh, what reforms the EU has to embark on. So it would have been a, at least we get what we have to do. We have a vision, we have a position, and we're developing policies and we're actually doing stuff, right? You then kind of look at the story over the last, you know, not just 10 days, but the last, you know, three, four months. And what's the story emerging there? Well, it's a story about, you know, sort of a, a coup epidemic in the Sahel. Okay, we're not, you know, we're, we're obviously stopped doing what we were doing because we've been kicked out, right? But do we even know what we want? Yeah, do we even have a vision? No, you know, beyond saying, you know, we, would, we, we want to support ECOWAS because, you know, African solutions to African problems. I mean, that's the perfect excuse not to have a position, right? So we don't even know what we want, let alone having the right instruments and doing what it takes, right? We don't even know what we want. Then you look at the kind of, you know, tragic case of Armenia, Azerbaijan and, and Nagorno-Karabakh. And okay, you know, in fairness, we have, you know, one has to give kind of, you know, credit at least to Charles Michel for trying, um, you know, trying to stop a war where the writing was on the wall uh, after 2020. Um, and, and in many respects, kind of being completely, um, you know, sort of well, being completely armless. I mean, you know, having no tools really whatsoever. So, you know, kudos to Michel for trying, but the result is the ethnic cleansing of 120,000 people, right? Um, and then, of course, you have this ultimate catastrophe in, in, in the Middle East, um, where it has been such a sorry show, you know. Um, and, and this actually sort of makes you reflect 
about why is it, you know, beyond the buying into a certain Israeli narrative about not really having to resolve the conflict full stop, but I think one of the reasons why Europeans have not been talking about this in recent years is because the consensus that was built in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, which basically is, you know, the two-state solution, 67 borders, da 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 that consensus has crumbled. And so we didn't want to talk about it because we knew full well that talking about it would have re-exposed, uh, would have not re-exposed, would have exposed um, a completely crumbled consensus. Now, of course, then something like this happens and you can't avoid uh, talking about it. And so, you know, again, it, there's no vision, there's no united vision. So if you don't have a vision, if you don't have the instruments, I mean, where are you, right? Cacophony. It's cacophony. Uh, but it, as I said, it's, it's, it's tragic, really, because I think only six months ago, we would have probably had a very, very different conversation about European foreign policy and the so-called geopolitical commission, right? That has just been swept away now. It has indeed, and instead of which we have cacophony. But definitely, you've not been offering us cacophony. Uh, we'd really like to thank Natalie Tocci for this absolutely fascinating uh, view on the unfolding events of this week. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five star on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels, so reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and even TikTok. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel with my friend and colleague Florence Ferrando, and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation.